Well, that last song is such a great reminder of the gospel, isn't it? And uh, that's what we do when we gather back together here on Sunday mornings as Christ's ambassadors, right? As we are out during the week uh, being an ambassador for Christ and having been entrusted with that message, the message we just sang, right? Um, To come back together and to be reminded of the gospel and to relish the gospel, and uh, be so grateful for the impact of the gospel in our own lives, and uh, what an honor and privilege it is to share that good news of salvation um, to others throughout the week. Well, this morning, I'm planning on just wrapping up our series that we've been doing on evangelism, and um, unless I get a visit from the Lord in the next two weeks or something that I'm supposed to preach one more message, I'm just kidding uh, about that, but... Uh, I do want to bring your attention back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me, we began uh, last week looking at this text and talking about evangelism God's way, Um, and I confess to you that uh, in my earlier days as a young man, as a young believer, that... uh, I experienced a lot of fear and a lot of frustration when it came to sharing the gospel with my friends and family members, and it really was um, because I was doing it my way uh, and not God's way. And I think we're all susceptible to falling into some bad habits or uh, employing some some, uh, ineffective methods to share the gospel with others and to evangelize others, and so we're talking about what is God's way. Uh, to evangelize. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. And so I think there's something to say for why many a church and many a Christian has what you could call evangelophobia, that we're scared to share the gospel, that we're intimidated by the opportunities we may have from time to time to speak a word for Christ. And, uh, and so God encourages us and admonishes us that we are to not fear or be intimidated, but, verse 15, here's our verse, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We said last week that that expression there, make a defense, in the original language is apologia. In the Greek, from which we get our English word, what? Apologetics. And most of us are familiar with that term, apologetics. It's defending, or I like to include in that, commending uh, Christianity to those who don't believe. Now, typically, when we think about apologetics, we immediately think about defending or arguing or debating with people of different faiths and religions. And I I considered myself quite the apologist as a high school student, and I was definitely debating with a lot of people, and that's about all it was. I was reasoning with them, and I was arguing with them, but I wasn't 
employing the, the methods that, and the means that God has provided for us uh, to, to share the gospel or to defend the Christian faith. And last week we mentioned there are basically two ways to defend the Christian faith. There's what's called the evidential rational approach where you prove Christianity is true using reason and evidence. And then there's the presuppositional approach where you simply presuppose that Christianity is true. In other words, you don't need to prove it. It's true. And everybody knows it's true, even though they might say they don't believe it. The Bible says they do know it and they do um, believe it, if you will, even though they reject it. And so it's important for us to understand there's a huge difference, a huge difference between trying to prove that Christianity is true and simply presupposing that Christianity is true. And that difference makes all the difference in evangelism. And if you understand this simple yet profound difference, I think it will totally revolutionize the way that you share your faith. I think the bottom line is this, when it comes to presuppositional apologetics, is Christianity is not an opinion to be proved, but it's a truth to be proclaimed. So when, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we don't have to, to prove it. We need to simply proclaim it, again, since it's already something that people know is true. And so rather than feeling the pressure to have to convince people that there is a God and that the Bible is true, we simply assume it. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why um, many Christians are afraid to share the gospel is because they're, they lack the confidence of knowing what to say if somebody asks them some question. They, they don't know all the answers. That, what, what if all the you know, uh, uh, potential questions that somebody could ask, all the objections that somebody might make towards the gospel? I don't think I know all those, so I'm not even going to get into it because I don't want to look stupid or I don't want to you know, not have the answer. Which, by the way, if you ever get asked a question that you don't know the answer to, just tell them, you know what, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Let me study that, and I'll get back to you about it. All you're doing is you're setting up another opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, right? And so consider that a blessing, right? Because it's an excuse to have another conversation. And don't ever be embarrassed uh, to admit that you don't know everything. Um, and uh, I think people would appreciate that humility. Um, and they also, it's a great example to, 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 to them to show, the, show them that, hey, you're going back to the Bible for your answers, right? It's not just uh, coming up with stuff in your, from your own head. Now, we mentioned last week that there are two foundational truths that God has revealed in his word that compel us to evangelize presuppositionally. And if we're not convinced of these two truths and committed to these two truths, it will be impossible for us to evangelize God's way. But when we start evangelizing God's way, at least in my experience, the frustration and fear that typically accompany evangelism goes away, or at least is minimized. It's not as much. And um, I promise you that if you understand these two truths, it will give you greater confidence, greater boldness, um, and it will help you overcome evangelophobia, if that is something you uh, are afflicted by, right? Um, so what are these two truths? that 
supposedly will revolutionize the way you share your faith. Well, what were they? Number one, man's depravity. And number two, God's sovereignty. When we looked at all these verses, uh, Genesis 6-5, Jeremiah 13-23, Romans 1-18, uh, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 2-14, which really define for us the doctrine of sin or depravity, which means that man is totally, completely corrupted with sin. Sin has affected, not, affected us not just physically, but mentally. In other words, sin has affected the way we think and the way we reason. And the Bible likens our sinful minds to somebody who's insane. In other words, we don't think correctly. It's called the noetic effects of sin or the sins, sin how it affects the mind. So we cannot, we will not understand or accept the truth. We don't want to know the truth. And even if we did want to know the truth, we couldn't understand it apart from the grace of God. And depravity, another word for depravity is inability. And so if we can't do anything, that means God must do what? Everything. God's sovereignty. John chapter 1, John chapter 6, verse 65 uh, chapter 15, verse 16, Romans 8, 29 through 30, Romans 9, 16. We see all these verses that talk about, we looked at these last week, uh, that God is sovereign over salvation. He's totally and completely in control of the process of salvation. Man has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has everything to do with it uh, because man is incapable. God is completely capable. And so total depravity requires total sovereignty and again, since we can do nothing, God must do everything. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so God had to make us alive in Christ. And that's why, by the way, he gets all the glory. It's not like we share the glory with God for our salvation. Yeah, God did his part and we did our part. So we kind of share the glory. No, we, we would never sing a song here or pray a prayer that would any, any way indicate that we should get some of the glory for our salvation right? You would never pray that. You would never sing that. And that's the evidence that we all know that ultimately it was God who saved us. And he gets all the glory. And that's essentially where we left off last week and leaving you, probably some of you disappointed that it was just another sermon chock full of theology with not a whole lot of practical help when it comes to evangelism, well, I tease you a bit by telling you one of my favorite professor's favorite lines, um, the one who taught this class that became my favorite class in seminary, apologetic methodology, and this is what he said. He said, men, your theology must control your methodology. So after spending literally weeks going over all the verses from Genesis to Revelation about man's depravity and all the verses from Genesis to Revelation about God's sovereignty, he essentially said, so what? Why, why did I just take weeks to go through all those verses to convince you that man is completely, utterly depraved and can do nothing to save themselves and that God is 100% responsible for our salvation? Well, because it should control how you preach, how you counsel, and how you evangelize. And so let's try to make some application now this morning about how 
knowing man's depravity and God's sovereignty, or at least the, 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 these um, doctrinal truths, the two doctrinal truths, controls or influences the way that we evangelism, or the way we evangelize. So back to the two ways you can defend your faith. Number one, there's the rational evidential approach, where you attempt to prove that Christianity is true using reason and evidence. Now, based on everything we learned last week about God's sovereignty, man's depravity, what do we know? Well, in light of man's depravity, reason and evidence are ineffective to get a person to become a Christian. They, they, they oftentimes are, are useless or unsuccessful. And I told you how I would provide all this evidence and I would, you know, what about this and what about this and, you know, scientific, you know, proof that evolution is a a theory, it's, it's a fraud, it's not true, and therefore there is a God, and he created the world in six days, and you know, I could provide all this evidence, but my friends would just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I just don't believe that. Or they would go off on some other tangent, and it, it seemed like I wasn't getting anywhere with them. Well, the point is, you can't reason with someone who's on a totally different wavelength. It's like, it's like sitting with someone and, and uh, I know that a number of, of you moms homeschool your kids. Imagine having a conversation with your ch- children when you're covering the subject of math, and you say, now, Junior, you need to understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And, they, and, the, and your child looks back and says, no, no, Mommy, it, it, it's 6. And you're like, no, no, 2 plus 2 equals 4. No, Mommy, it equals 6. And you're like, okay, let's set up these things. I got two of these, two apples, and then another two apples plus another two apples. How many of those? One, two, three, four. No, mommy, it's six. You, you pulling out your hair going, what is your problem? Are you insane? Can't, can't you see that it, like, like there's four apples? That, so two plus two equals, no, it's six. That's the way an unbeliever's mind works. According to Romans 8, that they cannot understand the things of God, right? Um, you can provide them all the evidence in the world, but they are just going to reinterpret it or reject it. Evidence doesn't demand a verdict. Even though we love and appreciate that book, right, that Josh McDowell wrote many years ago, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Well, the bottom line, when it comes to an unbeliever, evidence does not demand a verdict. It doesn't necessarily stimulate faith in unbelievers, what does it do? I think it strengthens the faith of believers. I think those books, honestly, uh, Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Christ, those are good books for Christians to read because they strengthen our faith and they realize, you know what, I'm not having to check my brain at the door to believe the things that they're teaching me at church, that they, they, there's good evidence for the things that I believe. And it bolsters and strengthens the faith of believers but it doesn't necessarily create faith in the hearts of unbelievers. See, the problem with unbelievers is not a lack of proof, but a lack of faith. Look at Luke chapter 16. Look at Luke chapter 16 with me for a moment. This is that story of um, the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, there was a rich man... Um, very wealthy, lived in this mansion. There was a poor man named Lazarus. This is verse 20 of Luke 16. 
sat by his gate hoping to be fed with the crumbs that fell from this rich man's table. The dogs would come and lick his sores and now the day came when the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. So you've got the poor man goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell and in hell, notice what he says, in, in, in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to that, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. So he's begging Abraham to send Lazarus, this poor man, to refresh him with some water. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is this great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. By the way, this is where we draw a lot of our doctrine of hell from this story that Jesus told. The point being here that this man realized that he was stuck forever in hell. There was no escaping hell. And so, guess what? That guy in hell became an evangelist. (laughs) Notice verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father that you send him to my father's house. If he can't come to me, then go to, send him to my father's house back on earth for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And so this rich man knew that his brothers were of the same quality and character as he was. They were unbelievers, unsaved. They didn't have any regard for God or the poor, or, and that they were headed for hell too. No one knew better their spiritual condition than this guy in hell. And, uh, and so he was passionate. I beg you. That he, he didn't want, based on what he was experiencing, he didn't want anybody else to have to experience what he was experiencing. He says, I beg you, Father, you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may mourn them that they don't come to this place of torment. But notice verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What, what is Abraham saying there? Who, what, is, what is he referring to, Moses and the prophets? They have this thing right here. They've got the Bible. They've got the Old Testament, at least at that time, which clearly explains how someone can escape hell how they can spend eternity in heaven through a relationship with God. Notice the rich man didn't like that answer. Verse 30, he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In other words, if if Lazarus kind of shows up and knocks on my Father's house and my brothers and come and answer the door and there's Lazarus, the guy that used to sit at the, at the gate, the dog's licking his wounds and all of a sudden he's, they, they know we had his funeral last week, right? And, and now he's, he's alive again. He, he came back to life. Surely they'll repent of their sin and they'll get right with God. 
In his mind, there was no better evidence, no better proof, nothing more compelling than somebody who came back from the dead. I mean, it doesn't get, it doesn't get any better than that as far as proof or evidence, right? But look, look at the last verse, verse 31. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they don't listen to the word of God, which they already have, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, this was Jesus' way of saying, um, just so you know, uh, if people aren't willing to listen to this, that it, it won't matter even if I rise from the dead because shortly he would die and come back to life. And did everyone in Israel who had rejected him and demanded that he be crucified, did they, did they, did they all repent? Because he came back to life? No, in fact, it hard, they hardened their hearts even more against Christ. And they came up with all sorts of lies. In fact, what did they do with the evidence? What did the religious leaders, of all the people that would have, you think would repent, here uh, we thought this guy was a heretic and now he's come back to life. Maybe he is the Messiah. We need to repent and seek God's forgiveness. And well, what did they do? They tried to hide the evidence. They paid off the soldiers who came and said, hey, we don't know where he went. Well, just, just say the disciples came and, and, uh, and stole him in the night. And we'll, we'll get your back on this. Don't worry. So even then, they were reinterpreting the evidence. They were rejecting the evidence. They were suppressing the evidence, trying to hide the evidence. And that's the heart of every unbeliever. And again, we should gain great encouragement and great hope from this story in Luke 16 because it's not about us persuading people and, and providing just the right evidence or just the right logic to persuade them. No, if, if they don't accept this and this alone, it doesn't matter what evidence that you provide for them. They won't be persuaded. Why? Because they lack faith. And we know that faith is a what? Gift from God. Hebrews 11.6, you're familiar with this verse, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. I think it was Augustine who said about this verse, Hebrews 11.6, that people don't need to understand in order to believe. They need to believe in order to understand. You see the difference, right? In other words, it's like, hey, if I can just, if I can just help them understand, then they'll believe. No, they need to believe by what? Faith. And then they'll understand. And then even then they won't understand fully. Do you understand everything fully about God and the Bible and Jesus Christ? No. But the point is, you must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You need to believe in him first and then you'll understand. Don't think you're going to, well, I, you know, I'm going to wait till I understand this to really commit my life to it. No, you commit your life to it 
And then God grants you the grace to understand it as you go. Again, it's not their doubts that keep people from coming to Christ. It's because they love their sin and don't want to give it up. That's the story of the rich young ruler. Luke 18, Jesus has this conversation with this man who comes rushing up to him, falling on his face before the Lord and begging him, what what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever had anybody come up to you and just ask you point blank, hey, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Well, this is like, talk about a lob and a beach ball, right? Getting ready to hit it out of the park. I mean, this is like a golden opportunity. And so Jesus presents the gospel, if you will. He walks him through who God is and who he is, a sinner who has violated the law. Um, And then he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then you know his response. When he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely what? Rich. In other words, he was unwilling to give up for him, what, what was for him, his riches were his idol. They were sin to him. Again, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but when it's an idol that keeps you from giving up your life to Christ, right? If you're, it's like a choice, I got to either give up my stuff or, you know, or give up Jesus. Well, I'm going to give up Jesus and keep my stuff. So again, it was, it was his sin. It wasn't his doubts. I mean, he, Jesus answered all his questions. He answered his question perfectly. There was, there was no reason he couldn't have said, oh, that makes total sense. I'll, I'm going to do that right now. It wasn't that he still had doubts. He didn't walk away scratching his head going, well, I'm still not sure about this. No, he, he knew exactly what he needed to do. He was just unwilling to do it. I think that is a good example of most unbelievers that we interact with. It's not like we could have given them one more piece of evidence that would have sealed the deal. They didn't want the deal. Why? Because they want their sin. In fact, you look at um, John, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the idea. You come into somebody's life, an unbeliever's life, and you flip flip the light switch on as you share the gospel and you share Christ with them and he's the light, right? The light of the world, boom, light switch comes on and all of a sudden their sin is exposed and they're like, hey, turn the light off and get out of here. I like my sin. I like living in the darkness. And, and by the way, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Imagine someone lost in a, in a cave, and uh, you are on a rescue mission, right, to go find them, and uh, here you come with your torch, and you're coming down, and you finally find the one tunnel that this guy's lost in, and, and here he all of a sudden sees this, like he's been sitting in darkness for days, 
And all of a sudden, here comes the rescue, the light's coming, and as soon as he sees the light, he runs deeper into the cave. He runs away from the light. According to what the Bible teaches about man's sinful heart, that's what they do when the light of the gospel comes into their life. They run away from it. They run deeper into their darkness. And so all that to say, reason and evidence are squirt guns in a spiritual nuclear war. I mean, you can use them if you want, right? But you need to pull out the big guns. You say, what are the big guns? What, what weapons should we use then? And this brings us to the presuppositional approach, which emphasizes and relies on the two most powerful weapons at our disposal as believers, and that is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so I want to look at some verses with you about the power of the Word of God. Again, verses that you're familiar with, you've probably heard before, but let's all put them together and see what we can learn. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, for the rain... For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Here it is, verse 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God never said that our words would not return void. He said his word would not return void. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? What would you rather have, a squirt gun or a flamethrower? Right, that's the word of God. It's like a hammer that shatters the rock-hard hearts of unbelievers. How about in the New Testament, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, this is the account of uh, the Emmaus Road when the two disciples were leaving Jerusalem, heading home after the crucifixion and uh, even after the resurrection, they had heard that there were some rumors about that Jesus had come back to life and so Jesus shows up and walks along with these two disciples on the Emmaus Road for a while, and they have a conversation um, about uh, the truth. And verse 27, then beginning with Moses when all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So what did, what did Jesus use to convince them that Jesus had, that he truly had resurrected from the dead? The scriptures. He just went back to the Bible. And walked him through the Old Testament and said, look at all these promises that were to be fulfilled in the Messiah. One of those being that he would come back to life. And then after they realized this and it dawned on them and the, and the Lord opened their eyes to see and their minds to understand. In verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? In other words, if you want to be a powerful evangelist that, that, uh, that, that God uses to powerfully influence 
the lives of unbelievers, don't sit there arguing with them and debating with them and reasoning with them with all these evidences and archaeological data and all this kind of stuff. Just present the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Explain the scriptures. Have your Bible open when you're having a conversation or at least have a lot of scripture that you've memorized over the years ready, right, to quote. But use the scriptures because that's what would cause a person's heart to burn within them. In fact, Paul's example in Acts 17, Acts 17 verse 2 is helpful for us because it's not like we're throwing wisdom out of the equation or, or I should say reason and logic out completely of the, out of the equation because notice what it says in Acts 17 verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them. But what does the rest of the verse say? He reasoned with them what? From all the evidence and the archaeological data and all the, uh, the, the arguments for the existence of God, scientific facts, what? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? Power of God. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing all the logical arguments for the existence of God and all the you know, archaeological evidence for this. Or, no, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the word of Christ. In other words, if people are going to believe if they, they need, what they lack is faith and they need faith, how, where are they gonna, how is God going to bring them to faith? It's going to be hearing this thing right here. Not all of your intellectual arguments that you might think that are going to be so convincing to them. Second, Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 is a great verse about the power of the scriptures and its salvific power. Uh, in other words, it's, it's the power of salvation. It's, it's what God uses to save us. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, and that from childhood, he's talking to Timothy, you have known the sacred writings, scripture, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul said, Timothy, you know how you got saved. You know how you came to faith in Christ. It was through your exposure to the sacred writings, through the scriptures that your mother and grandmother taught you when you were young. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, what is it that God uses to save people? How were you saved? How was I saved? How are unbelievers in our sphere of influence going to be saved? It's through this thing right here. They're going to be saved through the word of God. I'll never forget a, an experience that Kelly and I had in our first apartment back in California. In fact, I was thinking about this because we drove by it several times uh, to and from our host homes and but I was reminded of a, of a conversation that, that, that I had, we had one night 
uh, with our neighbor. And, and we lived in an apartment on a second story, and you basically opened your door, and it, and it faced the neighbor's door. And so oftentimes you'd open the door, and boom, you like ran into each other when you were leaving, right? And so you very easy to build a relationship with your neighbor in, in that close quarters. And so uh, there was a single man living there, and we decided, hey, let's invite him over for dinner. And I remember sitting at our little table in our little apartment, and uh, we were sharing the gospel with him. And we were talking with him about uh, his relationship with the Lord and, and uh, just doing our best to engage him with the truth. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, as, as we were just dialoguing and just talking with him, um, he was very comfortable. Uh, it seemed like he was even enjoying the, 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 the conversation and it was a bit of a debate and a bit of an argument, a gracious argument, kind of back and forth bantering about things. And then I finally didn't know what else to say. And so I said, hey, can I just read you something? And I opened up my Bible, and I began to read, for him Roman, read, read to him Romans 1, 18 through 33 or 32. That whole section about why God's wrath is coming upon mankind because they suppress the truth and the righteousness, and they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and God gave them over to this, and God gave them over to this, God gave them over to this. I mean, it's just like, whoo, talk about ramping up the conversation, right? I'll tell you what, at that point, when I began to read the scriptures, his attitude completely changed. And uh, it was, it was, he, he, at that point, he was done. Why? Because I think he, reading the scriptures convicted him more than anything I had said up to that point because it was God's word that he was hearing and he had nothing to say. He had no comeback. And in fact, it infuriated him and, and pretty much he ended the conversation. I said, I think this conversation is over. I'm going to go home now. And it's interesting. As long as I just kind of, kind of played uh, or, or had a conversation on, on his turf, if you will, um, and remained on his level, if you will, that it was my thoughts versus his thoughts, his opinion versus my opinion, it was a comfortable conversation. But as soon as it became God's word, what God has said versus what he thinks, it was like the conversation's over. In a, in a positive way, because he knew he had no comeback for God. And so uh, it was just interesting to see the drastic difference in his response. As long as I kept talking and sharing my ideas and my opinions, and I started sharing God's word, I saw the power and the impact of God's word was far greater than anything I could have said. So you've got the Word of God, number one, but secondly, you've got the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. And we have plenty in the New Testament that explains and emphasizes that the Spirit of God is the power source for us as Christians. Uh, John 16, verse 8, Jesus said, when, when He comes, this is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, you can talk to somebody until they're blue in the face and they won't be convicted. It's not you that convicts people. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts people. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, you'll remember after Jesus commissioned the disciples and essentially said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all I've, I've commanded you. And in this context, in Luke 24, he said, hey, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. But then in verse 49, he says, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In other words, Jesus gave them their marching orders. They knew their message, but he said, hey, time out. Don't go anywhere. Stick around Jerusalem because there's one more thing you need. You've got, you've got, the, you've got your mission. You've got your message. But now you need to wait for the power. And the power was the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so don't head out to share the gospel unless you are filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit and witnessing are uh, inseparable. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 Notice the role of the Holy Spirit here, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by who? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates and saves. Not our persuasive arguments. And then, of course, Ephesians 6.17 brings these together. This is the passage about the armor of God. And he calls this right here what? The sword of who? The Spirit. So again, it's the Word of God. And the Spirit of God. It's God's dynamic duo. It's, it's, the, it's the power twins. Remember those guys? Power twins activate. I grew up watching the superheroes. And uh, the, the, the power twins, it's the Word of God and it's the Spirit of God. And they come together. And if you remember, the, they would, those twins would touch and psh, big explosion. They turn into something, right? That's what happens is the Word of God and the Spirit of God come together psh, Regeneration takes place and that person turns into a different person. Every man who's in, who's in Christ is what? A new creature. The point is this. I think too many of us as Christians do this with our Bibles. We take our Bibles and we put it behind our back and we're like, hey, now I want to share some things with you from the Bible. And you need to understand you know, that uh, the Bible is true, it's the Word of God, and the reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God is because of this, 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 and this, and the Dead Sea Scrolls this, and the, the, the you know, the canonization this, and, 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 and we're, we, we, in other words, we think we got to prove that the Bible is true before we pull it out and use it, so we kind of hide the Bible behind our back. That'd be like having a gun or a grenade and having it behind your back, and somebody's coming at you, and they're wanting to argue with you, fight with you, whatever, and you need to defend yourself, if you will. You're not going to say, now, hey, hey, time out, pal. I, I have a gun behind my back. 
and you don't want me to pull it out and use it. Okay, I got a grenade. All I have to do is pull this grenade, this pin on this grenade. Don't, 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 don't push me. What would you do? If somebody's coming at you, you'd pull out the gun and you'd use it. You'd take, pull out the grenade and you'd pull the pin, right? This is where the power is. So just use it. Spurgeon had a great analogy. He said, um, you don't have to defend a tiger. You think about that. Somebody, you know, you got a tiger in a cage. And somebody comes up and wants, starts teasing the tiger. Oh, look at this cute little pussy cat and kind of poking at it and making fun of it, right? Which a lot of people do. They make fun of Christianity. They laugh at it and they, they, they poke arguments and think they're poking holes in it. And, 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 and so... Listen, if you're the owner of that tiger, what are you going to do? Just open the cage and let it out. The tiger will speak for itself. You don't say, hey, I wouldn't mess with my tiger. Have you seen his big teeth? Do you know where this guy, you know this guy's heritage? You, uh, no, you're not going to defend your tiger. Let, just let, open the cage and the tiger will defend itself. In other words, simply tell people what God's word says and let God's spirit convince them that it's true. And I think when we evangelize like this, it, it takes all the pressure off of us. Like, I don't, have to, I don't have to seal the deal. I don't have to convince and persuade them necessarily. The pressure should be in knowing the word of God. That's the pressure. Do you have enough of God's word stored up in your mind and your heart that when you have opportunities to share and unbelievers maybe ask questions or you want to share something, do you have, is the scripture there? You say, well, I didn't have my Bible. Well, hopefully you got your Bible here and here, right? So that's where the pressure is to, to, to store up scripture in your mind and your heart through your own daily study of God's word and go to equipping class and go to grow group and, right, you're building up your storehouse to share. And, and so not only is there pressure to know the word, but there's pressure to know how to pray. Like, how's your prayer life, right? That's where the pressure should be. Are you praying for unbelievers? That God would convince them, that God would soften their hearts, would God, that God would bring them to the knowledge of the truth, God would grant them repentance, God would grant them faith, right? That's where the pressure we should feel. If, if there's any pressure in evangelism, it should be making sure we know the word and we know how to pray. And again, what about the fear and frustration, right? When you when you realize it's not your job to convince people that God exists and the Bible is true, right? You don't have to have all the answers. That's liberating because you can just simply share the gospel with people and then walk away and say, okay, God, they're all yours. Instead of walking away going, oh, if I had just said that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to show you how Paul explained and exemplified everything that we've been talking about here last week and this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, and here Paul is really in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his ministry there was a lot of um, confusion in the church in Corinth. There were some false teachers there that were undermining Paul's ministry and gossiping and slandering him about him and slandering him. 
and uh, saying all sorts of untrue things about him. And so he was defending his ministry and why he did what he did. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, if you spend the majority of your conversation with unbelievers trying to be clever in your conversation with them, you're voiding out the power of the gospel. You're, you're voiding out the power of the cross. It's like you're, you're leaving the tiger in the, in the cage. Notice verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, don't, let, don't be discouraged when you bring up the gospel, you bring up the topic of the cross, that, that people kind of look at you like you're from Mars or something, or they consider say that's stupid or whatever. Well, that's what the Bible says, that to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But those of us who are saved, it's the power of God. We know it's not foolish. We know it's not stupid. We know it's powerful. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, I'm not going to waste my time debating with people. That's as an effort in futility. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, now check this out, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. So Paul said the Jews, they, they, want, they want proof. They want evidence. They're looking for signs. Hey, Jesus, do this. Do another miracle. Do this and that. Right? They're looking for some kind of evidence, proof. The Greeks, on the other hand, they want what? Wisdom, logic, reason. And if you know anything about the Greek society, it was all about, you know, why was Paul, why did he sit up on the Areopagus, you know, uh, in Athens Talking about the resurrection, because they love to sit around and reason and debate about all these things. They were philosophical. And so he says, the Jews asked for signs, and the Greeks searched for wisdom. So there you have the evidential, rational approach right there. But we preach Christ crucified. In other words, we don't give either of them what they're looking for. And frankly, Christ to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Gentiles is foolishness. In other words, Paul wasn't saying, oh, you know what? Preaching the gospel just doesn't work, so we've got to come up with another method. He's essentially saying, you know what? The gospel to the Jews is a stumbling block. They don't get it. And the Greeks, they don't get it either. They think it's foolishness. You see him altering his method at all? He's not, you know what? I'm just going to keep preaching.
preaching Christ crucified because that's where the power is. And I'm assuming that that's how people will naturally respond, but for the grace of God, right? Verse 24, but to those who are called, those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, there's going to be some that God has chosen for salvation, and guess what? They're not going to stumble over it. They're not going to think it's foolishness. There's going to be some Jews, there's going to be some Greeks who see Christ for who he really is, that he is the power of God, the wisdom of God. Notice verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, check this out. This is an encouragement to us. For consider your calling, okay? You're one that God chose for salvation. He opened your mind and, 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 and heart to the gospel, that you see Christ as the power of God, the wisdom of God. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. By the way, don't take that personally. But you and I are, are who he's talking about. We're the, we're the not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. We're the foolish things of the world. We're the weak things of the world. We're the, we're, we're, we're the base things of the world. We're nobody. We're nothing. But God chose us for salvation. Ultimately, why? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. Like, you know what, I was just, I was smart enough to figure it out. Everybody else is not smart, enough, smart as me. I, you know, I, I don't understand why I don't understand. I don't understand why they don't believe, you know. It just, just makes logical sense, you know. And No, you, you weren't wise. You weren't mighty. But God was gracious to save you. So that ultimately your boast would be in Him. And not in yourself. But by, doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Again, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not your doing, his doing, who became to us wisdom of God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And by the way, he wants to now take those of us who aren't wise, who aren't strong, and use us to go back out into the world and be ambassadors for Christ. It's not about how wise we are and how strong we are and mighty and powerful we are in our intellect and our, in our eloquence. No, you, you go in weakness. Recognize you're, you're, not, you're nobody, you're nothing. But you have the power of God. And you have the spirit of God. And that's what he wants to use. And so even when you are used by him to lead someone else to Christ, and that's not because you're just this amazing debater, but you're just a faithful sharer, communicator of the gospel, guess what? You don't get any credit for that. You can't take any glory for that. That was all God. And so even in our sharing of the gospel, and maybe somebody comes to Christ through our witness, we can't take any credit for that. It, God gets all the glory. We boast in him, amen? 
And then I love this. Check this out. Forget there's a chapter break here. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren... So now he's going to use his own example. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, I didn't, I didn't come with my eloquence or intelligence. And by the way, if there was anybody who was intelligent and eloquent, it was who? It was the Apostle Paul. Some of us think, man, if I was just as smart as Paul, if, if, I, if I was just as, 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 as good of a speaker as Paul, then I, could, I, I'll go, I would go out and witness. Well, Paul says, guess what? I, I may have been intelligent. I may have been eloquent. But you know what? I didn't come to you in reliance on those things. He says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. By the way, you say, well, I don't know enough to, to share my faith, you know, share the gospel with people. Well, are you saved? If you're saved, apparently you know enough about the gospel to be saved yourself. Surely you know the gospel well enough to share it with somebody else how they can be saved. Don't, don't say, well, I just don't, I have to go to a few more equipping classes. I need to read a few more books before I'm confident in my, no, just share with them what you know, what you believe how you got saved and how they need to, what they need to hear to be saved. I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you. Here you go. Here's, here's Paul. Here's bold, brave Paul, right? Was willing to be stoned for the gospel, beaten countless times, left for dead. Notice, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Here's the Apostle Paul, the, the guy we all look up to and wish we were like, and he's like, hey, guess what? I was, I was scared to death. I was, I was actually physically shaking when I was sharing the gospel with you. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of what? The Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, I didn't want you to think you got saved because I was so clever, and I was so smart, and I was so eloquent. No, I wanted you to know that you got saved for one reason and one reason other, and that was the power of God. The power of the Word of God, right? And the power of the Spirit of God. Listen, when we're convinced of man's depravity and God's sovereignty, that will compel us to present the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God, for the glory of God. And so practically, what does that look like to determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does that look like practically for you today? Well, if, you've, if you read this book, and I trust you will, you'll see at the very end, there's an appendix. And I think it's brilliant. 
Because what do you say? What would, what would be the only right appendix or afterthought after you've shared, you know, written chapters on evangelism? How to share the gospel. Not just as an individual, but as a church. What would be the natural afterthought or appendix? Oh, by the way, what is the gospel that we're supposed to share? And so he provides a, a, a simple outline or explanation of the gospel, and he provides a list of Bible verses to back up each point in the gospel outline. And, and, and again, I think it's brilliant, and I would just say this to you, that one of the simplest and most practical things that you can do to excel still more in the era of evangelism, besides praying every day for opportunities to share the gospel with others, is to memorize and personalize a concise gospel outline that you can present whenever God answers that daily prayer and gives you opportunities, which he will. If you pray that, I guarantee you he will answer that prayer. And so you need to have, you need to be ready. What are you going to say? Well, you don't have to do all this homework about, you know, archaeology and science and, you know, logic and reason and no you need to know the gospel that's what you need to know because that's all you need to share because that's where the power is and so if you're going to spend some time prepping for gospel moments gospel conversations the best thing you could do is is to memorize and personalize an outline of the gospel and of course, you know, we use here at Lakeside, we have it on our website, we have it in our welcome book, we, we use it when we train people to go on short-term missions trips. The basic outline that we use is what? What, what are the ba- four basic points? God, man, Jesus, you. What do people need to know about God? Well, they need to know there is a God who deserves to be glorified. There's lots of verses in the Bible that Communicate that, that you can memorize and quote. You also need to know that man has a problem. And that that problem is that man refuses to glorify God and deserves to be punished. But because of their sin, people deserve to die and go to hell. And we know there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? The wages of sin is death. Well, that's the bad news. The the good news starts with Jesus. He's God's solution. He died and rose again from the dead so we could be saved, so we wouldn't have to be punished. And Jesus endured the, the wrath of God on the cross and satisfied God's justice and secured salvation for those who would repent and believe. And that's the last point is, okay, so what? You, what's your response? The command to repent and believe in Jesus must be obeyed. He who believes in the Son is eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you need to admit the fact that you're a sinner, you're separated from God, believe that you're forgiven through faith alone in the finished work of Christ, and commit your entire life to obey him as your Savior and Lord. That's the gospel. Obviously in abbreviated form. Now you could share that in 30 seconds, or you could share that over the course of a three-hour flight to Los Angeles, which was a joy and a blessing for me to listen to my brother Kyle share the gospel with the lady that was sitting between us on the plane. And uh, it was so natural. 
Kyle just struck up a conversation with this gal, and um, she was a single mom, and she had teenage boys, and so there was an instant connection about youth ministry, and um, she was a, a, essentially, I guess, a universalist, believed all sorts of stuff that wasn't in the Bible, and so Kyle very patiently, very gently, very graciously walked her through the gospel. Well, I was sitting there with my book open, acting like I was reading when I was actually praying <laughs> for my brother Kyle and for this woman's heart that God would soften her heart, help her to see. Now, that lady didn't begin to weep and repent and pray the sinner's prayer right there in the plane, but they had a very significant conversation. And she heard the gospel. And uh, we have to keep in mind that, guess what? The gospel or successful evangelism is not when someone gets saved. Successful evangelism is when the gospel is shared. The gospel is proclaimed. Whether they get saved or not. And it's all about faithfulness, not necessarily fruitfulness. I mean, look at Jesus. We looked at Luke 18 and the interaction he had with the rich young ruler. I mean, some would say, well, look, Jesus, man, you had that, you had, the fish was on the line, man. The, that guy came up to you and, and, and you blew it, Jesus. He walked away. Some would say that was an example of an evangelistic failure, right? No, that was a, a successful evangelistic moment because that man was left to deal with the truth of the gospel. And we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. Maybe he did come to Christ later on in his life. We don't know that. But there was definitely a seed planted when Jesus shared with him the truth of how he could know for sure he was going to heaven. And there was a seed planted in a woman's heart on a plane trip from Houston to L.A. last week. Let me end by just sharing a quote from this book, Max Stiles' Evangelism, he said this, I yearn to be in a church where evangelistic attempts are championed. Even if an evangelistic effort doesn't lead to a gospel conversation, evangelistic failure is better than not trying evangelism at all. And he goes on to share a, his own experience of witnessing to a taxi driver in Chicago. It's a great story. Can't wait for you to read it. He says, I again felt as, he, as the taxi driver drove away, dropped him off at his hotel, he drove away. He again felt the familiar sense of failure about sharing my faith. I wished I had said more about the gospel or maybe said it in a better way. But as I thought about it, I realized that what I could have said or should have said was not the issue. What I did say was true and I would trust God to use that. And then he said this, God loves me and loves that I took a stab at standing up for the faith. I love that. Are you taking a stab at standing up for the faith? You might feel like, man, I'm, I just, I stink at this. I just keep falling flat on my face and wimping out or popping out or whatever. Guess what? God loves you and he loves the fact that you took a stab or you're willing to take a stab at standing up for his faith, for your faith. 
He really doesn't hold my sin or my failures or even my awkward attempts against me. You ever walked away from thinking, okay, that was awkward. He doesn't hold those against you. And if he should choose to call Ibrahim, which was the Muslim taxi driver that he was sharing the gospel, he says, if, if he was to choose to call Ibrahim to faith, it won't be because I said everything just right, but because of his grace alone. Amen? It's good for us to remember salvation is a work of the Spirit. We try to be thoughtful, bold, and clear in the way that we tell others the gospel, but God brings the results. And then he says this, maybe fruitless attempts to share your faith with a neighbor you see day after day or a taxi driver you see once in a lifetime have made you wonder if it's worth it. Take heart. Evangelism is bigger than what we see. Remember God's promise. He's giving you a fuller understanding of the good things we have in Christ. He's giving you his eyes to see people as he sees them. He's helping you know the rich meaning of the message we bear, and he's helping you depend upon him to work in people's lives. Another another one of the gentlemen that was with us this last week I was so encouraged, so blessed to watch him take a stab at standing up for his faith at California Pizza Kitchen. And our waitress was there and just making sure we had everything we needed. And she said, what are you guys here for? And immediately he saw the opportunity and he took it. And he began telling them about the Shepherds Conference, what we're at and what's that and began to talk about the Bible and about being a pastor and about Jesus Christ and began to pose some questions to her about did she know Christ and this waitress was very friendly and amicable and she didn't mind being asked these questions and other than the fact that she had probably several other tables she had to get to and so we were trying to be sensitive to that but it was just a joy to watch this guy take a stab at standing up for the faith and she pretty much said hey thanks that's interesting and walked away and uh the really only follow-up we had with her was making sure we gave her a really good tip. Nothing worse than sharing Jesus with your waitress and then, you know, being a stingy tipper, right? Um, they, they, got, they figured this out, okay? They know. And so, uh, anyway, um, who knows what's going to happen to that gal? But that was a great opportunity. In fact, she now has a lightning rod in her hand. And I I love that illustration that I read in uh, Donald Whitney's great book, Spiritual Disciplines Disciplines for the Christian Life. In his chapter on evangelism, he said, sharing the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm and handing out lightning rods. He said this, you don't know when the lightning's going to strike or who it's going to strike, but you know what it's going to strike It's going to strike the lightning rod of the gospel. And so, beloved, we must never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation of all those who believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this helpful reminder um, over these last few weeks about evangelism and the significant role that you 
ordained for your people, Christ followers, to play in helping other people find Christ and follow Christ. Father, we are your method. You have no other means other than your people that you've left here on this earth to be ambassadors for Christ. And so we're thankful that you haven't just left us here to, uh, in our own wisdom, in our own eloquence and intelligence to convince and persuade people, but you've given us your word and we've given us your spirit. And I pray we'd find great freedom in resting in those divine weapons and that it would just liberate us to and, and release us from this evangelophobia that so many of us as Christians struggle with. And that we would just joyfully and freely share the gospel with everyone that we have opportunity. And that, Lord, we would see a great harvest of souls for your glory. Use us, not just individually, but use us as a church to speak of Jesus to this community who so desperately needs to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.